Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Build Podcast. I'm Kyle Poyer, VP of Market Strategy here at OpenView, where I help software companies accelerate growth and master my favorite area, pricing and packaging. That's why this season on Build, we're talking all about the art and science of pricing. Each week, I sit down with operators and experts to hear their pricing insights and experiences firsthand and answer some of our listeners' most burning pricing questions. Now on with the show. On today's episode, we're going to turn the tables. OpenView partner Liz Kane joins me and, of course, brings a bottle of wine, and we both discuss our pricing insights and advice from a VC perspective. Today, I'm joined by our most frequent guest on the OpenView Build podcast, Liz Kane. Liz, welcome back. Number three. Very excited to join again. Who's counting, really? <laughs> <laughs> and we've now both been at OpenView for about three years. Could you tell listeners what you were doing before OpenView and what brought you to the firm? Yeah, of course. So winding back pre-OpenView, I actually started my career working for a startup called OpenAir. So keeping it in the Open family. Joined NetSuite via acquisition in 2008 and spent about eight years there working in different parts of the go-to-market organization across sales operations, account management, selling into the install base. And then I moved to the top of the funnel and built out the BDR team doing inbound lead qualification and outbound prospecting. We had a pretty large team, about 170 people when I left. And it was time to go back to some earlier companies and had the opportunity to come join OpenView and work with the portfolio. And that's three and a half years ago now. Well, and you and I both work closely with the portfolio companies and are in a really unique position to be able to watch them scale over time and see sort of like what works and what doesn't work. And I know a major trend that you've been championing is product-led growth, which is kind of counterintuitive for someone that was just working with top of the funnel and outbound prospecting. What got you interested in product-led growth? Yeah, you're absolutely right. When I first came to OpenView, I think my focus was very much on helping the portfolio companies scale their BDR teams, think through transactional inside sale processes, really doing the more systematic sales process. And over time, maybe the first year here, we started talking about this concept of product-led growth and this idea that the product can be at the forefront of customer acquisition, retention, and expansion. And I'll be honest, I resisted at first. I was like, there's no way that we can do this with the product and without an inside sale sales or a field sales team. And watching the success of some of the OpenView companies, companies like Calendly and Datadog and Expensify, I quickly realized that this is like the wave of the future and that more and more sales teams are going to have to adapt to this new model and the new way in which companies and buyers are actually purchasing software. And that pulled me in and got me excited about product-led growth. Now, I want to go down this path, but I think we got to take a step back and talk about how you joined OpenView too, because you also have the PLG bug. Yeah. For listeners, I haven't really given my story. I started off my career as a consultant. Don't hold that against me. I was <laughs> at Simon Kucher for six years. Simon Kucher is the world's largest pricing strategy firm. And we were working with everyone from diaper makers to casket manufacturers on pricing. So truly cradle to grave, but had a number of B2B SaaS companies in the mix as well. And it's interesting from a pricing perspective, I mean, a lot of our work is looking at what's the value and ROI you deliver to customers, and then how do you really fully monetize your offerings? And so similarly with product-led growth, I resisted it from a viewpoint of why would you give away for free something that's creating all this value for your customers? 
But, you know, for me with product-led growth, it's not really giving away something for free. It's finding a way to get an entry point with a customer, normally at the user level, get them hooked on the product, and then create more value for larger organizations, more people in the product, and more sophisticated users, and being able to monetize that. So being able to balance what gets the customer into the door and then how you make money at the end of the day. So I found that model to be a really kind of unique way of balancing multiple priorities that SaaS companies have. Anyway, what got me interested about OpenView was I was looking to get you know, closer with the portfolio companies I was working with. In consulting, you always have kind of this relationship where you're sort of a vendor, you don't get as involved in the implementation, you don't always see the results of your work. You do the parachute in and out move. <laughs> exactly. And I wanted to go more in-house to see that impact over time and get to work you know, even more closely with a smaller set of companies. So when you first started here, you know, there were probably 25 active portfolio companies. We've done probably 15 more investments since you joined. Do you want to talk a little bit about some of the pricing projects you've worked on here? Because I do think we've learned a lot in the last few years. I think we've repriced more than half the companies in the portfolio. And it's always interesting because I think one of the things that we see is that companies don't really know how to even do a pricing project. Pricing is something that certainly the CEO is thinking about a lot, but it's more of like a Groundhog Day discussion. And we heard that with Mike Volpe at Lola back when he was at HubSpot. He said the founding team was constantly talking about pricing, but they could never really come to a decision around how to change it that everyone would agree to. And part of that was they didn't have the right data that they could collect that would be objective and that would move the conversation along in a way that brought everyone on board. So a lot of what I do is kind of set up projects where we get a lot of insight from sales and those that are closest to customers, learn about the product and how it compares to competitors, survey and interview users to understand what value they see in the product and the competitive advantage and ask about willingness to pay and so on, and then bring that all together in a way that is able to sort of get all of the executive teams operating off the same set of data to ultimately make decisions. Yeah, and it's interesting because while you spend the bulk of your time with our portfolio, you've also had the opportunity, well, we both have, of meeting with hundreds, if not more companies over the last few years who are, you know, prospective investments for OpenView, but just generally companies in our network, early stage software companies who are either pricing a product for the first time, thinking about how to extract more value, or thinking potentially even about expansion in their existing customer base. A lot of lessons learned over that time. Definitely. And it's so funny where I think some of the founders I talk to, they kind of have this preconceived notion that there's a perfect price out there, right? And they just have to find it. But once they find that perfect price, that's going to work for their business for a while. And I think one of the biggest things that I think I've helped a lot of founders realize is that they should be treating pricing similarly to how they treat product management. It's something that they need to be iterating on. They need to be learning from customers. They need to be making it better and better over time. And they need to balance the objectives of the company and what's right for the customer to ultimately move forward. And it's something that you know you don't want to dramatically overhaul overnight, certainly not all the time but you can keep making incremental improvements along the way. 
So we did a survey now probably almost a year ago, our last expansion benchmark survey, and I feel like we learned a lot about how startups are thinking about pricing. And since we're talking about pricing today, do we want to share some of the stats and just the frequency with which people are looking at pricing and how they're thinking about it? Because I think there was some pretty compelling stuff that we learned there. In years past, you know, people have been afraid to touch pricing at a company, but I think we saw in the last year so much more willingness to experiment with pricing. More than 60% of companies that we surveyed said they changed their prices in the last year, which is a pretty staggering figure. And then we actually asked as a follow-up, what impact did you see as a result of changing your pricing? And it's interesting, of those that changed it, only 2% said that it decreased their revenue growth. The flip side of that is 98% said that it increased. It's hard to find growth initiatives that have that high of a likelihood of success. I mean, the takeaway there is everybody should be thinking about pricing. I mean, huge opportunity to unlock value. Two in five actually said that pricing changes impacted their revenue growth by 25% or more. And if you think about how many growth initiatives you might have, how many are not going to require adding more headcount, and it's something that you can implement relatively quickly, not overnight, but more quickly than some other initiatives, and that could have a you know two in five chance of driving that kind of 25% faster growth. Yeah, we don't see many of those. I wish we did. Yeah. If someone else has ideas for others, definitely let us know. So should we talk about some of the most common mistakes we see? I mean, across all these companies that we're talking to and our portfolio and your background doing pricing projects, you know, I'm a little newer to this, but in the last, you know, three years in the VC world, I feel like I have a much greater appreciation for what pricing and packaging really can do for a business. I went from the sales side where my focus was on discounting and figuring out how to align the packages that were available to me to the value I knew I could bring a customer. Now sitting on the other side and learning from you, I feel like I finally get to experience how they're actually set and coming up with those from like bare minimum versus starting with a package in hand. So maybe we share some learnings. Definitely. So, I mean, for you, what's the number one mistake, I guess, that you see companies make? I think probably this ties back to what we were just describing, which is most companies are underpricing their product. And when we you know, do surveys, when we talk to customers, when we go out and do qualitative research against our companies, what we're finding consistently is if you're delivering value to your customer, you're underestimating really what that value is worth. And there is generally an opportunity to start increasing pricing and figuring out really how to optimize those value metrics and extract more over time. I think particularly in software, where new features are getting added regularly, where you're continuing to invest in the product and pricing probably hasn't been updated recently. There's just a lot of room there. But I think it ties back to segmentation and like the maturity of the go-to-market motion, right? And when a company maybe is founded, they have a minimum viable product. They just want, you know, nothing to stop them from getting some of that initial adoption. Go get logos. Yeah, they're getting logos. Maybe they're calling on their buddies in Y Combinator who joined with them. That's a great customer base to get some initial feedback from, but that's a very different customer base from when they have a mature go-to-market motion. They're proactively spending sales and marketing dollars going after the target customer. They have way more proof points that the product works and ROI stories, and they have happy users that are already successful with the product that they can go upsell. At that point, there's sort of a mismatch between how they initially set prices and then where the value is now. 
a lot of times we talk about what are sort of the root causes of failure in startups and we attribute it to like product market fit a lot. Oh, they didn't find product market fit or the product market fit wasn't good enough. It's a small market. But I think in a lot of cases, it's actually pricing and under monetizing is a big reason why SaaS startups fail to get traction. And first round, they have a great survey of CEOs every year. And they looked at founders who say that fundraising is a piece of cake and compared them to founders who say that they struggle to fundraise. And those who struggle were three times more likely to say that they monetize too late and twice as likely to say that they picked the wrong business model. And so kind of thinking about pricing and monetization should really be at the forefront of a founder's mind, even in the relatively early days of building a software company. I mean, we were even in a meeting yesterday and I heard you say we need to match a product to the price. Right? We can't just start with a product and figure out pricing later. We need to be thinking about monetization from day one. How do you encourage founders to do that? How do they think about setting that initial price point and building packaging that actually makes sense for the product they're building? To me, it has to do with really getting to know the customer and trying to be in their shoes, right? So if you're LinkedIn, and let's rewind the clock like 10, 15 years, right? We all know how LinkedIn charges today, but pretend you didn't know, pretend this is early days and you have this social network, all of these professionals are on and you know they've all got profiles, you can search different people and you wanna introduce maybe messaging to be able to reach out to people that you handpick great value proposition. They could have said, all right, let's survey all of our users and see, do they want to message people? Do they want to be able to search profiles? If so, how much would they pay for that? If they just looked at all of their user base, they probably wouldn't really see that high of willingness to pay. People would say, oh, this seems like maybe something I do once in a while. I pay a few bucks for that. But they realize that there are some pockets of their users that are going to see outsized value from this. So like for a recruiter, this is going to be something that they're using all day, every day. It's like the core to their workflow. And so they started with where those use cases and where those types of customers that might only be 10% of their users or 5% of their users today, but see really outsized value. And how do we build a product that fits their needs and then charge accordingly? And then over time, they've also layered in things like LinkedIn Premium or LinkedIn Job Seeker, where people that are even searching for a job can message people or LinkedIn for sales. And so the product is not dramatically different for these different use cases, but it is different enough to justify the vastly different price points everywhere from like $25 per month to like thousands of dollars per month that they charge. I mean, this comes back to packaging too, right? If you look across LinkedIn, we say that they're not, you know, particularly different products. The reality is they're identical. They've just been packaged differently. They took the same features and included a few more in-mails in one place, the ability to save searches in another, saving candidates in one, when really it's all the same functionality and they just put these pieces of the puzzle together in a slightly different way. How does packaging tie into pricing as you kind of think about working with with these various companies and you know is it just two sides of one coin are you always thinking about both they definitely go hand in hand to me it's trying to figure out what different types of customers would pay and why 
And then what do those types of customers need to be successful and trying to balance those together in a way that also doesn't make things overly complicated, that provides an upsell path for people as they get more sophisticated in the product and that you can communicate clearly, ideally on your website. And so you're balancing a lot of stuff together. Really the most common approach, not always the best approach, but the most common approach just says, we're gonna ultimately go with a good, better, best strategy. For those that don't know, Good, better, best is where you have three packages. The good, which is a basic version. It has the initial stuff that a entry-level user needs. You have a better that has even more. And then you have a best that is your showcase. It has all the great stuff that you do. And it helps you show off all of the potential capabilities, even though you know most people don't need them. And then at least that way, you're able to have different price points for different types of customers that corresponds to the product capabilities that you have. It's super clear and easy for people to understand. I think we see two thirds of SaaS companies have some sort of good, better, best model. And so if you're getting started with packaging, that's a good way to get started. And you'll start seeing patterns in who buys the best package or who buys the better or who buys the good. And then you can get you know more differentiated from there. So as people are thinking about that good, better, best model, I feel like I've learned a lot from you over the last couple of years about, you know, some of the kind of key tips and thinking about that, you know, which features belong where, whether there are certain features that might actually kill a package or be other reason somebody doesn't buy. Or even, you know, whether some new features as they're coming out could create greater virality or greater usage. And while they may seem like a premium feature, should actually be included in the lowest level because it creates an upsell path. Any like quick tips or, you know, those kind of gotcha moments that you'd want to pass on for the good, better, best model? So I think Amanda from Figma brought up the framework from Simon Kucher that I use almost every day, and it's the leader filler killer framework. It's easiest to kind of explain in the McDonald's context. When you go to McDonald's, you're probably going for lunch or dinner, and you know you want a main meal, so probably a burger of some sort. You might get fries if you know it's a cheat day, or maybe you'll get a soda, but if everything were charged individually, you'd probably just get the burger and maybe one of those things. But McDonald's was smart about saying, well, why don't we package that as a meal and give sort of a discount for it, but call it a different thing. We can get people to buy this meal and ultimately pay more and they'll leave happier because they feel like they got a great deal for it. And so in the McDonald's case, the burger is their leader product. That's what people go in wanting to buy. That should always be available in in every plan because if you don't have it, you don't satisfy that basic need for the customer. The fries and the Coke are filler products. They're things that people want, but you know, if they had to buy each individually, they might or might not buy it. And so those are things that people would cherry pick. It's hard to sell totally a la carte. And those are great upsells. And so that would be in like a better package. But they don't bundle things like their apple pie, their coffee. They've got all of these other things that they sell because they realize that if they threw that in, people would all of a sudden not buy the meal because they're things that they don't need. Like who wants coffee and a soda for lunch? But those are things that are still good products for them. They're just things that they can sell on a different occasion, like at breakfast or different type of customer. So those are great add-on products or products if you identify a separate use case, you sell to that use case as part of a package. So I always would say, look at the features that you have, write out the top 10 features, and you can include your services and support as well as a feature and really map out, is this a leader product, a filler or a killer? 
and are there differences by segment? And then all of a sudden that'll give you great clues into packages. The other thing that we're seeing in our portfolio as part of their product-led growth strategies are adopting freemium plans. And what we're seeing with freemium plans is where freemium makes sense. And I think Amanda also had some great insights about this from her experience at Figma. If your product has value for an individual user, freemium is probably a good business model to consider. What you want in the freemium plans is enough for that individual user to start solving their pain point. But then as soon as you're now solving a team or an organization-wide pain point, that's probably something in a paid version of the product. And so if you think about a Zoom, for example, they allow anyone to sign up for free, start using the product for unlimited one-on-one meetings. But as soon as they have group meetings, there's a cap at 40 minutes and then the meeting shuts off. And then also if you want more things like single sign-on or ability to manage different users within an overall account, any ability to get reporting, any customer success, all of that becomes part of their paid packages. So more of their team or enterprise packages. I mean, I'm sure many of our listeners have experienced that firsthand. I think about our own experience buying Zoom. We had probably 10 of the 38 people at the firm using free accounts on Zoom. We upgraded and we bought a number of licenses. And over time, what happened is people kept coming to us saying, hey, can you upgrade my license too? I'm hitting that 40 minute barrier and I have hour long meetings. And pretty quickly, we had everybody on their professional or their you know enterprise grade plan rather than these kind of one-offs when we thought, hey, you have a login, like you should be fine. And it's amazing how it infiltrates a company and kind of grows almost virally. Well, and they realize that the individual wants great products. They know what they have on their phone. They know like what apps they love. They want to bring those consumer grade experiences into their business life. And more and more, they're empowered to do that. Whether you call that the consumerization of IT or shadow IT, SCIO's nightmare, it's happening. And if you can get to the forefront of that and build that great product people love and that they can start using, they'll do the work of selling for you. Like we didn't need a Zoom sales rep to come in. We had this army of free users that were demanding paid accounts. And so when we ultimately signed up, that is what did it, not having, you know, an expensive salesperson do outbound prospecting, sending us a bunch of cold emails, cold phone calls, in mails to try to get us to buy. It was much more frictionless. Okay, but you brought up the elephant in the room, sales. What is the role of sales here? How do they feel about a freemium model? And does that like start to cannibalize another business? And I think we've spent a lot of time on that in the last few years, exploring what sales looks like in a product-led business, how freemium can partner with a you know sales organization and really like how it all works. You know, I think in particular, as I was transitioning from more of an enterprise and mid-market sales model into you know learning about product-led growth, I was definitely a skeptic. I didn't know or see the value of how a product could sell itself and thought we really needed salespeople. And I think over time, what I've found is freemium can be an unbelievable lead generation tool. And if the product can be at the forefront of customer acquisition, we're seeing more and more leads get generated. And as these freemium pools grow, we have the opportunity for quote unquote salespeople to kind of lean in on that. And if you're 
building your packages correctly and you're putting the right structure in place where you kind of reach these caps in your freemium product and you have natural expansion paths or product qualified leads, you can be looking for those signals within your product and actually pulling in a salesperson who really looks more like customer support or customer success at that point. They're aiding the user in solving the problem that they've encountered, which is potentially, you know, they need a longer meeting. They need to bring additional users into a meeting. They need X. And when you're solving that need, you're actually responding to a value-based question rather than trying to sell against something that's a little bit more amorphous. And so I actually think a product-led business can be amazing for salespeople. There is a huge opportunity to grow that customer base and to expand those customers, but it does come back to setting up the right pricing and packaging from the get-go. Well, and we had Heather from Pluralsight. She spoke at our product-led growth summit, and she talked about how Pluralsight has all of these individual users, developers that want to be trained on different programming languages or the latest and greatest sort of programming skills, and they'll start becoming a free user. They'll maybe take a skill assessment to see how they are with different languages whether they can do a new job versus what they're doing right now. They'll use a free version or a paid version of their training programs. And then that gives Pluralsight this amazing amount of data to then be able to go to maybe the VP of engineering and have a much smarter sales conversation with them that's more like, hey, wouldn't you like to know what these users are doing, how to equip them to be more successful in their careers? They're able to have you know, a warm entry point. So if someone actually wants to answer the call, they can have a data-driven conversation and they can have a much faster sales cycle than if they were you know, going to these accounts totally cold. So initial sort of usage within an account can be an amazing opportunity if you're a sales rep to blow through your quota. Absolutely. The expansion opportunities are huge. Okay. So we're talking mistakes. I started by saying the biggest mistake I see. We explored a lot of things there, but what's the biggest mistake you see in talking to these companies? One thing that I've just seen time and time again is picking the wrong value metric. So value metric, by the way, is the unit behind how you charge or how a customer pays. So historically, that's been per user. But it really doesn't have to be. And I think I've seen companies realizing when per user pricing makes sense for a business and when it's actually a bad call. So in a lot of cases, a horizontal application like a Slack or a Salesforce, if everyone in a company can use your product, users makes a lot of sense to charge off of because you can sign up with a small group of people and then grow that account naturally. But there'll also be products that, like especially marketing technology products or developer-oriented products where the number of users has no correlation with the value that the customer is getting. Like when Instagram sold to Facebook, I think they had like 10 employees. And so if a company like a New Relic or a Datadog or an AWS was charging Instagram based on their number of users, they would be so underpriced from what they could achieve. And I think similarly, like if HubSpot charged a company based on users, they would be not making a whole lot of money because there's probably only a handful of people inside of company that are going to need HubSpot licenses. So how do you figure that out? So if you're a company, you know, you have your first couple of customers and you're starting to figure out what that value metric should be. What do you do? So I look to try to first off have like a brainstorming session where you're writing out what are the different metrics that both reflect or potentially correlate with the value that your product creates for customers and things that you can actually measure ideally inside the product. And so 
users will probably be on your list to evaluate, but I think you'll start looking at product usage metrics, maybe company size metrics, maybe ROI related metrics, like the revenue your customers are generating as a result of using your product. And you can start looking at that list. And then I would look at it from a few different angles. So one is, does it reflect the value that a customer gets? Are they able to budget for it, right? So like if it's a payments product and you can just become almost like an infrastructure where they pay you a percent of the revenue you generate, they don't even see it because they're only paying you when they're making money. That's actually great because you're perfectly aligned with their payment cycles and and it's super easy for them to budget for. Think about, are you able to be predictable for the customers? If they need to make an expenditure up front, do they know how much they need and how much they're gonna have to pay? And is it something you can enforce with your billing systems. So you'll look at a number of criteria that would indicate whether this metric is going to help or hurt the business. And then also you can actually interview customers about it as well and understand what's acceptable to them. How do they want to pay for products like yours? You can look at competitors to see how competitors are charging. I wouldn't be totally drawn to competitors and say I have to price exactly the way they do because having a different metric can actually be a source of competitive advantage and can help you attract customers that maybe they haven't actually attracted or aren't serving particularly well. And so I would then go from there and whittle down to a smaller subset. And then you can test some of those metrics and look at the economics. Are you able to close deals faster because this metric allows you to have kind of a lower priced entry point for a customer? Do you have better net dollar retention where you're expanding in cohorts because their product is sticky, they use it more and more every month. And so you're naturally charging them more. And I think Mike Volpe talked about contacts at HubSpot and when they started introducing this element of charging companies based on how many contacts they were able to collect and market to, they went from having pretty low retention to reaching 100% net dollar retention just because they had this metric that scaled with the success of their customers. You know, it's funny, you touched on two things here that I do think we see time and time again. Number one, the complexity of pricing. And then number two, the ability to actually support it automatically in a billing system. And I think we've found that companies put some artificial caps on things or create barriers that are like unenforceable automatically and create the need to do more manual true ups can be a forcing function for a conversation, which can be great, but often just actually create a lot of overhead internally. How do you think about how product limitations can actually play into pricing and when you kind of give in to those product limitations versus enforce them? Well, too often the product limitations are what drives pricing. And I really try to stay away from that. I mean, I think some companies I talk to haven't built things like feature flags to be able to turn on and off features automatically for different types of customers based on what package they're buying. And so they default to offering maybe one package for everyone because of that limitation. And so I would start by saying build the product and the billing system initially thinking that you want it to be flexible and you know going back to this idea of treating pricing like you think product management and building for the ability to change in the future and that ability to be lean and move quickly on pricing actually is also a source of competitive advantage if you design it up front so that's the first advice but beyond that you obviously need to find a metric that you're going to be able to track so i think a metric that could be really hard to price based on would be one that your customers have no visibility into. If they're unable to see in the product how much 
usage they have. If it's not front and center, like at HubSpot, how many marketing contacts you have? And that's something you have to ask the customer. Oh, hey, by the way, how many contacts do you have now? How many contacts do you have now? That's just not going to work. Or vice versa. If the customer has to come to you and says, how many did I use? Right. And they're then kind of putting a burden on you guys to provide that information. Yeah, it needs to be totally visible. And then I think there are more and more billing systems now. I think when we looked at the space five or 10 years ago, there weren't a whole lot of products that supported subscription billing. And the nice thing is now there's a range of both startups and more mature companies and everyone's going to complain about their billing system. I think that's natural, but really the capabilities of billing systems are so much better than they were. And there are even billing system startups that are just founded with this idea of we are the best at supporting usage-based pricing. And so I think this idea of we can't support charging in an automated way based on usage is probably an outdated notion and you should really test your finance person or your billing person who's telling you that and spend a little bit of time analyzing whether that's really true and, and looking at the space because you might be surprised by the capabilities of the vendors that are out there. So Liz, we covered a lot of great ground here. As we kind of wrap things up, what's a company that you would say you admire from a pricing and packaging perspective? I mean, I think you already touched on them, but I think LinkedIn has just done an unbelievable job of understanding the various segments of their customer base, the unique needs that those users have, and the value that they provide. I mean, I joke about this, but we are literally a customer of every single package LinkedIn sells here at OpenView across the sales navigator, the LinkedIn recruiter, and it meets an individual need for each person. So that's one that I just continue to call out as being an exceptional example of pricing. For me, I mean, it's a plug for Abde, who was on the podcast. I'm a big fan of Atlassian. It's really unique for a company, especially given when they were founded, to be so transparent about pricing that even if you're spending tens of thousands of dollars a year, they publish their pricing, they publish their discounts. It's extremely self-service oriented and transparent to the customer. And it's aligned with value. They know that their prices reflect the value that they provide for a customer, and they're willing to stand by that and and even publish it for the world to see. And I think that goes back to one of the things Abde mentioned in the podcast, where one of the things that he did when he started was align the executive team around the pricing philosophy. So any pricing change or any new product that they were launching, they were going to follow that same set of philosophies. And so this is a model that was really unique, especially when they were founded, but they've been able to be consistent and provide a great user experience as it relates to pricing when they were founded and still to this day. Well, Liz, thanks again for joining the Build Podcast as our third time guest. Thanks again for having me. Thanks for tuning into the Build Podcast. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere you listen to podcasts and give us a five-star rating while you're at it. Outside of podcasts, we produce content daily on OpenView Labs. You can also follow us on Twitter at OpenView Venture and subscribe to our newsletter that's sent out to over 100,000 SaaS operators every Saturday morning by going to openviewpartners.com forward slash newsletter. Until next time.